Today's Bible reading is two extracts from Acts 21 and Acts 22. The first one is Acts 21, verses 17 to 26. Luke is writing of their arrival at Jerusalem. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rituals and pay their expenses so that they have their heads shaved. They can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. The second passage is from Acts 22, verses 22 to 29. At the point of this passage, Paul has spoken to the crowd after his arrest. He's just said that God had sent him to teach the Gentiles. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, "'Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty?' When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he'd put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Good morning, everyone. 
Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great if you are new or newish to Wollongong Baptist Church. Uh, we'd love to meet you. Please grab one of these Connect cards, which are out on the welcome desk after the service, uh, and fill it in so we can be in contact. Uh, as Mark has said, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We've heard two sections from chapter 21 and 22 read, and we need God's help to enable us to understand it and to put it into practice. So will you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, we do again give thanks for this book of Acts, uh, the opportunity that we've had as a church to be working our way through it, to hear the incredible story of the founding of the early church. But this is so much more than a history. This is your words of life to us. And so we pray this morning as we spend some time just thinking through these passages uh, that you would give us great insights into what they meant for their original hearers, but also what they continue to mean for us now, that we would put them into practice to your glory. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. As we come to today's passage, ritual and what is considered socially acceptable are very much in the forefront. In communion, we've already had a ritual that we've changed the ritual a little bit. We've put it earlier in the service, and people are thinking, oh, what have you done? You've wrecked it. We've thought about the significance of a ritual that built on or took an existing ritual, the Passover meal, and refined what it meant. Paul, as a Jew, very clearly had two feet in two worlds, one firmly planted in the Jewish world of traditions and laws handed down to his ancestors, and the other foot firmly in the world of the Gentiles. In practice, Paul was able to switch very easily between what he ate and how he spoke, depending on who he was with, where he was. And so this morning we're going to think about how should we think about rituals and cultural expectations. Verses 1 to 16 of, verse, of chapter 21 could be mistaken as simply the travel itinerary of Paul after he left Miletus, where he'd said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Paul and the team jumped on a boat that takes them to Syria, Caesarea, and eventually, following the green line, they worked their way right down to Jerusalem. In verse 4, Paul is sent a message through the Spirit, and in verse 11, the Holy Spirit says of so much more significance than where they went and who they stayed with along the way is the warnings that are given to Paul as he presses on towards Jerusalem. It could be concluded that Paul presses on to Jerusalem in defiance of God's explicit warnings to him through the Holy Spirit. But it is much better to read Paul's stubborn resolve in the light of chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, while he has been and continues to be warned by the Holy Spirit that suffering awaits him in Jerusalem, it is the Holy Spirit who's compelled him to go on to Jerusalem. As Jesus had pressed on to Jerusalem, according to Luke, had set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that it would result in his death. Paul knows the gist of what's going to happen to him when he gets there, but the closer that he gets the clearer and clearer it is made to him by God of just how bad it's going to be when he gets there. Now, while his friends are devastated by these warnings and, and want Paul to reverse course because of it, Paul knows what he must do and so he presses on. Testifying to the good news of God's grace is more important than even his own life. 
Now, once they do make it to Jerusalem, Luke's focus again helps us to see the main point that he's making by what he picks and chooses. In a very, very brief summary, Luke reports that Paul is warmly welcomed and reports in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. The previous 10 chapters of the book of Acts have recounted in detail what that detailed report would have included. But it is the implications of those things in Jerusalem that Luke turns to and forms the bulk of verses 17 to 26. Now, my guess is that James and the other elders were genuinely excited by the growth of the Gentile church. It's exciting news, but it's very hard not to feel that they also believe that what is happening locally in Jerusalem is more important than what's going on out there in the Gentile territory. They immediately switch from praising God to telling of the great number of Jews who are believing in Jesus and remain zealous for the law, what we call the Old Testament. Now, the last time that Acts has focused directly on Jews was way back in chapter 9. In the first part of Acts, Jewish people accepting that Jesus is the Messiah was the main focus. 3,000 added at Pentecost, chapter 2. People being added daily. The number of men grew to 5,000. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, chapter 6. The, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria increased in numbers, chapter 9. It is easy for us to sometimes forget that at first the church was made up exclusively of Jews. There was no one else. But since that last mention in chapter 9, it is only the occasional Jew in the synagogues that Paul visited that is mentioned by name. The, the vast majority of the people that Acts chapter 10 to 20 focuses on were Gentiles. I think that part of what this section does is helpfully remind us that other Christians were just as active as Paul was, Paul and his team, in different places. In this case, still centred in Jerusalem. But it wasn't some kind of competition of who could get the most converts. The issue was that Paul's ministry was very clearly teaching that Gentiles can become members of God's family without any requirements to participate in Jewish rituals. No need for circumcision, no Sabbath, no Passover, no Day of Atonement, no sacrifices, no kosher food laws. Back in Acts chapter 15, the church had already passed on a letter with a set of behaviours that the Gentiles were to avoid, repeated here in verse 25. In doing so, they had made it extremely clear that people from every single nation are welcome in God's family without the need to first become Jews. While Jesus was incarnated as a Jewish man and came as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, he is the human Messiah, paying the price for the sin of all humanity. That was the first and most extraordinary change that the early church had to adjust to, and it led to the expansion of the church into increasingly distant Gentile countries. But the implication that some had concluded from this, that Paul was also teaching that Jews should stop doing Jewish practices as well. The Christian leaders in Jerusalem assumed that this must be false, leading to the advice that Paul, a Jewish Christian, prove 
that he still lives according to Jewish customs. Which sounds suspiciously like Paul's supposed to have one rule for Gentiles and another rule for Jews. And I think that many of us, based on chapter 15 and the the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, assume that Paul will get his back up and reject their advice. No, we're saved by grace. So Jewish rituals are no longer necessary for anyone. But that isn't what Paul argues, is it? He agrees to take a Jewish vow, which involves dedicating his hair to God and then shaving it off a week later possibly a Nazarite vow, as recorded in Numbers chapter 6. It's not really clear. Paul also sponsors for other Jewish Christian men to do the same thing, to demonstrate that this is an appropriate Christian behaviour, not just for himself, but for other Jewish Christians to participate in too. So why on earth would he do this? Some people think that this shows that Paul's a shameless chameleon, Changing behaviours to to please whoever's in the majority at the time. Grace is good for the Gentiles when you're with the Gentiles. But Jews, well, well, they need to keep the law. Now, that's a terrible misreading, both of Paul's motives and his teaching. Paul has consistently taught wherever he is, whoever he's talking to, that salvation is only available by the gracious gift of God. Trust in Jesus' death and resurrection is the only thing capable of saving us. And so if somebody in Gentile territory believed that worship of idols can save you, Paul did his utmost to turn them from their folly. And if a Jew thought that circumcision could save them, well, Paul rebuked them just as strongly. Paul is not a universalist that thinks that all religions are just different ways up the same mountain. He is literally willing to die for his belief that Jesus alone can save. Which means today that if we think that by keeping the Old Testament laws, by being good, by coming to church, that we can be saved, then we need exactly the same rebuke. Our society may reject it, as narrow-minded exclusivity. But Jesus himself has made it clear that he is not one way amongst many. He is the way, the only way to God. Now, if that is true, then how come Paul is happy to still practice Jewish rituals? Well, in a nutshell, because not all Jewish rituals and behaviours were done in order to obtain forgiveness. While the sacrificial system was about the forgiveness of sin, in it, God had provided for the Jewish people ways of expressing gratitude, of bringing about reconciliation, of cleansing their houses from mould. Remember that Paul himself is back in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, a Jewish festival that he had participated in since his birth. What we need to realise is that Paul isn't celebrating Pentecost because it somehow contributed to him being right with God, but as the God-given ways for Jews to show thankfulness for the gift of firstfruits. It no doubt had added significance for Paul now that he was a Christian, as Pentecost was also the anniversary of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birthday of the church. Now, this compatibility between trusting in Jesus and existing cultural and religious practices, 
explains why Paul is happy to do a hair dedication offering. He knew that it contributed absolutely nothing to his salvation. Now, that also explains why he would rebuke anyone sacrificing a lamb for sin, knowing that the final lamb of God has already been sacrificed for the sins of the world. He's not arbitrary. And he certainly doesn't pick rules from the Old Testament based on what his audience thinks is acceptable. What your goal is in doing an activity determines whether it's compatible with being a follower of Jesus or not. Keep the Sabbath or tithe or be nice to your neighbour in an attempt to earn God's favour, waste of time. But celebrate Pentecost or rest on the Sabbath as the God-provided way of thanks and rest is perfectly in line with trusting in Jesus. It is super, super important that we realise that it is not just Jewish practices to which this principle applies. As there were things in Jewish culture that remained appropriate for Christians to do and be involved in, so there will be things in all cultures that can express the appropriate response to any situation that we find ourselves in. While being a good mate, showing humility and valuing rest are not clear-cut necessary outcomes of the gospel, yet as Aussie values, they have great potential to be consistent with being a follower of Jesus in Australia. I think that our bigger issue as Aussies is that we are more likely to be driven by our culture and assume that most things our society approves are also okay for us. And so it goes without question that we will do long work hours and chase home ownership, be part of the Melbourne Cup sweepstakes at work and upgrade annually to the latest iPhone as it comes out. Now, unfortunately, Paul won't give us a simple yes or no answer as to whether any of these things are appropriate or must be avoided by Christians in Australia. And so I think it's our ongoing homework to think through our motives. Is my obsession with property ownership actually an indicator that I don't trust God to provide for me? Have we allowed our identity to to be linked to what's popular rather than found solely in Jesus? What does participation in a welcome to country ceremony say about our submission to Jesus as Lord. Now, while this helps explain the principle by which Paul chose what he could and couldn't as a Christian with Jewish heritage do, there is another reason that I think Paul chose to do the things he did. And it's tied up with Paul's driving desire to tell people the significance of Jesus. I am completely confident that Paul thought through the likely outcome of his actions before he committed to a plan. It's very safe to assume that as he chose to accept the advice of James and the other elders, that he was very conscious that his actions could potentially be misinterpreted by the Jews in Jerusalem. A Jew could easily see Paul doing Jewish rituals, and it'd be natural to assume that Paul's motivation for doing it must be the same as their own. If Paul was doing a voluntary vow, wasn't something that he had to do, then a Jew could very easily conclude that surely this means that Christians were required to 
to, uh, to continue doing the compulsory laws like Sabbath and circumcision as well. It was a possible, even a likely outcome. But Paul thought that it was worth the risk. And so I think we have to ask why. The events that are recorded in verse 27, chapter 21, through to the end of chapter 22, give us the answer. The immediate outcome of Paul fulfilling this vow is that some Jews from Asia, which includes Ephesus, where he's just come from, or where the elders had come from, uh, accuse him of teaching all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. They considered Paul, a Jew, to be a traitor against his nation and against God. They believed that he's desecrated the temple, made it unholy, the holiest place on earth, has been dirtied by bringing a foreigner into it. Now, not unlike the riot in Ephesus, the whole city of Jerusalem converges on the temple. Only this time, they have Paul cornered inside, and so they commence trying to kill him again something which the Old Testament actually allows for and even encourages if Paul is, in fact, teaching people to worship another god. Thankfully, the Roman soldiers come to the rescue. Sadly, when they get there, they proceed to arrest Paul, who is clearly the victim rather than the perpetrator of the crime. It is the life and death situation that Paul's friends had feared and it also fulfills Agabus's prophecy that Paul would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. Evidently, the brief pause in the beating brought about by the shock arrival of the authorities wears off very quickly. The crowd is so angry with Paul that they attempt to get him even when he's in the custody of Roman soldiers. And yet in the craziness and the danger Paul has the presence of mind to ask for permission to speak to the Roman commander, who is shocked, assuming that, that Paul must be some criminal from another country that, that moments earlier had been subject to vigilante justice. But no, Paul insists that he is a Jew and would like to speak to the people. Now, in front of a crowd bigger than Paul himself could possibly have arranged, he has his chance to explain who Jesus is. And he repeats a story already familiar to us, recorded back in Acts chapter 9. Only this time, in chapter 22, Paul intentionally emphasises the facts which highlight the Jewishness of his story. He speaks in Aramaic, the local lingo. He reports his Jewish birth, education as a religious teacher, his zeal that was expressed in attempts to eradicate Christianity. The crowd is supposed to realise that Paul is just like them. The only difference is that Paul has met Jesus. Paul is instructed what to do by the Lord, a title that Paul applies to Jesus but was firstly the most used Jewish name for God. Paul is healed through the ministry of a devout Jew and, and given his lifelong task of being a witness to what he has seen and heard. In response, Paul did what any good Jew would do. He goes back to the temple. And while there, God spoke to him in a vision, warning him to get out of Jerusalem because the people of Jerusalem wouldn't listen to him. And then the clangor comes in verse 21. Verse 21, and I've just got to get to the right page. 
Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. His Jewish audience had listened respectfully, perhaps even intrigued up until this point. But at the mention that Gentiles are important to God, they erupt in rage. Kill him. Kill him. The Roman commander, a Gentile himself, probably has no idea why Paul's statement set the crowd off so violently. But in the typical brutal fashion of bad leaders, he drags Paul away from the crowd and instructs his subordinates to beat the explanation out of Paul. Don't give him a go and just ask, just beat it out of him. Now, in the company of a very different audience, Paul plays his trump card. Verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? I wonder what Tony was using as he asked that question. It's a masterstroke. And the response of the commander to the report of the centurion tasked with beating shows just how significant this statement is. The commander has been negligent in his duties. He's done something for which he could lose his job or worse. And so he rushes to question Paul directly. Verse 27, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Paul's unique heritage and experiences all coalesce to make him possibly the only person on earth at that time who could achieve what he's going to go on and achieve. Moments ago, he was nothing more than a criminal deserving of being beaten. Now, he is someone who must be brought before the Roman justice system, afforded privileges the vast majority of Jews could only dream of. Decades earlier, Ananias had passed on the message from Jesus. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And the words of Jesus are coming true. In light of the concern at the beginning of chapter 21 that perhaps Paul was disobeying the Holy Spirit's warnings, we are now left in no doubt that Paul has done exactly what he was supposed to do. It was risky. It, it seemingly could have backfired, but God was in complete control. Even as Paul was beaten in the temple, even as injustice was perpetrated in his arrest, even though the crowd refused to listen to his message, God was in control. It would be very easy to think that this is a terrible outcome. But Paul is exactly where God wants him to be, which I think is a pretty shocking encouragement to us. If you listen carefully to God and obey what he asks of you, your situation is not guaranteed to be a bed of roses. If you're anything like Paul, it's more likely to be just the thorns and none of the petals. Paul is a great example, showing that disciples are treated exactly like their master. As Jesus was rejected and misunderstood, so will Jesus' followers be. 
And yet that should inspire great confidence. God is in control and puts his people exactly where he wants them to be. These chapters of Acts challenge all of us to accept that Jesus' death and resurrection are the only thing that can pay the price for our not living as God designed us to live. That fact determines what Aussie practices and beliefs will accept and reject. And it sends us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to convince as many people as we possibly can that they too need to centre their whole lives on this one fact that Jesus is Lord. It's remarkably like the words you walk past as you enter the auditorium to know Christ and to make him known. Let's pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we would all know Jesus as Lord, allow his significance to rescue us from slavery to lesser things, to trust him even when things seem out of control and rescued by him that we would let others know that they can be rescued too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do again give thanks uh, for another chapter in the story. Uh, of what you were doing as you were ruling from your throne in heaven through Paul uh, and his obedience to you. Uh, We thank you for this incredible message of your centrality, that you are the exclusive saviour. And Lord, if there are any here that have not yet bowed their knee to you, Lord, enable them to see their need to. For us who have already bowed our knee, Lord, may we stay down there on our knees. Uh, and allow you to continue to have full authority in our lives, that we would be obedient, even in the midst of difficult situations. We thank you for the confirmation, the encouragement, that even in difficult situations, you haven't let us go. You're actually actively involved in taking us through potentially really difficult situations for your glory. And so may we be like Paul, impassioned by that, to do whatever we can in any situation we can so that people will hear about you and also come to trust in you and be saved. We ask this for your glory. Amen.